Jeff Dyer is an English writer whose corpus includes four novels and numerous works of non-fiction. His latest book revisits a subject he's written often about, photography. Seesaw is a collection of photography criticism, which includes pieces on photographers such as Gary Winogrand and fellow critics such as Susan Sontag. I'm Alexis Self, and on this special edition of the Monocle Weekly, Dyer joined me from his home in LA to discuss Seesaw and the relevance of photography criticism in the 21st century. I started by asking him how he began writing about photographs. Well, I became interested in photography uh, by reading John Berger, Susan Sontag, Roland Barthes, people like that. So really, I suppose I became interested in reading about photography before I became interested in looking at photographs. But like everybody, I'd been exposed to photographs. And one of the strange things I think about photography is that normally if you write for newspapers, a certain degree of expertise is required about the subject. But photography is unusual in that editors call up, you know, they ask you to write something about photography, even if you don't know much about it, because, well, it's all around, so you must know something about it. So I can remember writing a review of a biography of Walker Evans, whose name was familiar to me, but I didn't really know anything much about him. And to cut a long story short, I mean, over the years, the more I learnt about the history of photography, the more fascinating it became. And that's quite usual, I think. You're vaguely interested in Bob Dylan, then you get into Bob Dylan bootlegs, and before you know it, it's a life-consuming hobby. Yeah, and with this particular collection, were you thinking about it in terms of one book? And and how long was that process of curating these essays? Yeah, well, about every 10 years, I put together a a hamper of of my sort of essays on various subjects from the last 10 years. And for the last decade, I was sort of conscious, oh, there's not much, uh, there's not much, you know, it's a pretty slim file, this one. So I assumed it was yet further evidence of my decline but I'd forgotten that there was another file of essays, specifically essays on photography. And that was a bumper hamper that was full of stuff. So one of the reasons, for example, that I'd written so few literary book reviews is because I'd written so much stuff about photography. And actually, I was uh, amazed how much stuff there was there. But I very much share Cyril Connolly's idea that if an article is not worth reprinting, then it's not worth writing. So with a very few exceptions, I always have in mind that, you know, eventually these pieces will end up in a book, although whether that's going to be viable publishing-wise for, for much longer, I don't know. I mean, that begs the question. Was it ever viable publishing-wise? Well, I don't know if it was viable, but at least they published them. (laughs) No, that's interesting that you say that because, you know, one route that publishers have gone down is the kind of glossy coffee table book, which Seesaw seems to be positioned partly as. But, you know, I, I notice when you're talking about your influences, you talk about Susan Sontag's On Photography, and you explicitly mention that there are no pictures in her essay book, which you acknowledge as a formative inspiration. Was there a conscious decision to make Seesaw a book that people read rather than looked at? 
Oh, really? I mean, we're really getting into it now, aren't we? I mean, that's such a key question. And in a way, my response to it is just to want to scream or to go, ah, because when I have a particular relationship with publishers, as far as I'm concerned, whatever happens, it's always their fault. So, I mean, yeah, there's two ways to go at one extreme. As you say, there's the glossy, expensive, you know, illustrated book. On the other hand, there's the, the Sontag one. And I think what Canongate have tried to do is to get a bit of a foot in both camps. And oh, I'm so conscious of all of this stuff that on the one hand, yeah, it's a book to be read. It's not a picture book. But already one of my ungrateful friends who received a free copy has been griping that there weren't more pictures in it. It's really tricky to get right. And I'll be very interested to see if they have got it right. And I've got some history on this. I mean, when I published my first book about photography, The Ongoing Moment, it had quite a lot of pictures, all rather poorly reproduced. It needed a lot more. I knew nothing about book design. And there were loads of complaints about that, how small the pictures were. And that really wasn't my fault. It was I had to pay for all these reproductions. And it's very, very difficult. And then couple of years ago, I published this gorgeous uh, sort of coffee table book of photographs by Gary Winogrand. And I would I can say this because it's not boasting, but I think there's no book of Gary Winogrand's which features higher quality reproductions of his work. I can say that, you know, that doesn't say anything about the writing. So the Canongate, uh, this collection falls midway between the two. It's got some pictures in, they're reproduced really nicely. But on the other hand, I mean, I think in a way the Sontag version of things is more viable now than it was before because everybody can be looking at the pictures on the internet as they read it. I'm glad you mentioned Winogrand because the photographers at the beginning of the book, there's different sections. And, and the first one is basically in chronological order. And, and you quote Winogrand as saying, a photograph has no narrative ability. Does the history of photography have a narrative? And if so, is it one of straightforward technological advancement? Jeez, this is great. Yeah, another great question. I mean, it certainly does have a, a, the history of photography certainly does have a narrative of advancement. It's partly bound up with technology, but it's also bound up with itself in that, and this is what the ongoing moment was about, really. I was very interested from the time that I got into jazz onwards and discovered that George Steiner essay, The Real Presences, where he talks about the way that the tradition of any art form adds up to a syllabus of enacted criticism. And that was much more obviously the case in jazz than it is in literature. I mean, because in jazz, people are constantly doing versions of other people's songs or versions of standards. And it became obvious to, to me that although photographers, as you rightly say, they're really obsessed with kit and all this kind of stuff, and it's largely about what you can do technologically, even if they're not interested in the theory of photography, they're very, very conscious about what's gone before. And it's really striking how, you know, you, well, you can see see so, so many different versions of earlier pictures in the work of Winogrand, for example. You can see that Walker Evans is lurking there in the background, quietly amidst all the noise of Winogrand. And I was able to see this happening in many ways. So it's interesting to trace the way that different photographers photograph the same thing. You know, I mean, in that book, I start with uh, the famous Paul Strand image of a blind woman, which made a great impact on Walker Evans. Then I look at some famous picture of a blind 
blind person that Walker Evans did. You can trace this going on in a very clear narrative, I think. And it's quite interesting, these relationships that, you know, Winogrand really craved the respect of Walker Evans, which Walker Evans very thoroughly refused to grant Winogrand for reasons that now, you know, quite obvious, really, that there's a slightly snooty side to Walker Evans and he wasn't going to have any of this kind of vulgar chaos that you get in Winogrand. Do you think that the advent of camera phones and, and the mass democratization of photography has damaged its status in the pantheon of the arts? I mean, in the early days in photography, after it had got going and quite a few people were taking pictures, you know, Alfred Stieglitz expended a great deal of intellectual and practical energy trying to establish photography as an art, which he succeeded in doing, even though the exactly what it was that made photography an art, that changed over time. But it's funny that people kept worrying that photography wasn't being taken seriously as an art long after it had been. Okay, so it's a perpetual, uh, it's a perpetual concern. And I mean, the problem with phones, which is that everybody can do it, and it's all around, it comes back to that central problem with photography of the uniqueness or, or not of the image. So of course, it makes sense if you want to own a single picture by somebody, if there's only one of it, a painting, of course, it's going to cost a lot of money, it's going to be inherently valuable. The problem with photography was, of course, in its essence, it's reproducible from a single negative, you can make a 1000, you can make an infinite number of, of pictures. So that was the big change that happened, I guess, in the 1970s, when we got into this thing of ph photographs being uh, appearing uh, you know, very, very uh, largely in every sense on on uh, museum and gallery walls. Uh, and then we get into this whole thing of limited editions and all this kind of stuff. And I guess what the phone has done, it's just made that whole thing much more, much more difficult uh, to sustain. Mm. In addition to the fact that there's this sheer kind of colossal superabundance of images now. On that note, do you think criticism is more essential in an era of extreme saturation? Has it become harder to separate the wheat from the chaff? I'm not on any social media, so my knowledge of how these things work is uh, entirely secondhand. But my, my friend, the street photographer, Matt Stewart, who's both a great photographer and he's such a kind of player in the street photography world, I mean, he thinks Instagram is great. And there's all sorts of things going on whereby these great pictures, they rise to the top. That kind of consensus is emerging, even if it's not in the form of those classically eloquent essays by Sontag. My larger doubt actually is about the sort of curatorial system. And this is a real thing that I always come back to that, you know, when you go to, I don't know, something like the Venice Biennale, which was a thing that I used to enjoy going to a lot. There's a load of photographs and they're big. Uh, you know, they're eight by eight, eight by 10 feet, not inches, feet sometimes. And they're quite often pictures of nothing. Uh, the one I always think of is the kind of egg and cress sandwich in a little plastic triangle. But they look great because they're big. I sometimes wonder about the, the curatorial wisdom that, uh, that is at work to, uh, to grant these things, that the pictures like that, the kind of prominence they deserve. It gets very, very difficult when things are reproducible on such a big scale. And Winogrand comes into play here for me a lot because, you know, I always think that, you know, okay, there's a nice big colour picture. How much is there to look at that in comparison with an 8 by 10 inch Winogrand print? And quite often the relatively tiny Winogrand print is of saturating interest. 
Mm. Whereas uh, the the larger picture often uh, it exhausts our attention within a couple of seconds. Yeah. Well, obviously, you make reference to Walter Benjamin's highly influential essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, the central thesis of which is that an artwork loses its aura once duplicated. Do you think it pays to look at the original print of, of a photograph? Oh, unfortunately, to this question, I have to give the most boring answer. It depends. So something like a Gursky, let's say, you know, I don't know how many editions he would do as a of, a, of a given print, a whopping great print, probably not very many to keep the, the value up. That's a pretty immense experience when you seek one of those somewhere. But, you know, even then there is, as it were, no original. You're just seeing a, a, a very big picture. But with Winogrand, okay. I mean, I'm saying that the pictures in my book are of a, of a higher quality in terms of reproduction than they are in many other books. It doesn't matter that much because... I mean, Winogrand had said at one point, I think, you know, anyone who can print can print my pictures. And the pictures are remain amazing, almost irrespective of the of, of how you're looking at them. Although my book, my book of Winogrand is somewhat better than others, but that's not the most important consideration. So it 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 depends. Okay, so there's a point at the beginning of the book when when you describe Eugene at J and the early 20th century French street photographers as, as prizing their anonymity. And um, that really struck me as a kind of noble and marked contrast from today when photographers are often more famous than their subjects. Do you think it makes a difference whether a photographer's name is implicit or explicit in their work? I'll always come back to this experience I had when was a, somebody who just got into reading. You know, I loved D.H. Lawrence so much, so I had a picture of Lawrence on my, on my bedroom wall. And that was it. It was an interesting photograph of Lawrence. That's all it was to me. And then gradually, as I became interested in photography, I came to understand that this was uh, not just a picture of D.H. Lawrence, it was a photograph by Edward Weston. So it seems to me this is just absolutely the heart of photography, that question of, you know, uh, is it defined by who it's by or what it's of? And of course, it's both. But I think what's so what's so interesting is that there it is, you know, we recognise that it's D.H. Lawrence or whoever it happens to be, But it's so interesting that sometimes with a given picture, let's say there are three pictures of the same thing, we can tell who it's by and we can even tell it who it's by when the defining characteristic of that photographer is their anonymity. So the famous example of this, I guess, yes, there's Atjay, but then, uh, you know, Atjay is there as an influence on Walker Evans so strongly that Walker Evans, of course, denied he was an, in, an influence, but it seems to me inescapable. And Walker Evans was somebody who really was fascinated by this idea of the disappearance of the author. Uh, and he's, you know, he famously said he was a man of literature. And he took as an example of this as, you know, the disappearance of Flaubert into his work in Madame Bovary, for example. And, you know, it's another of these paradoxes because, yeah, Flaubert is immediately identified by that signature in the same way that uh, the lack of an obvious uh, stylistic flamboyance or whatever is what enables us to immediately say, oh, yeah, that picture of something which has been photographed by several people is quite evidently a Walker Evans or it's, uh, it's by somebody who's been very, very deeply influenced by Walker Evans. So yeah, this is absolutely central to any discussion of the history of photography. Talking of influence, how great 
an influence did John Berger have on your way of writing about seeing and photography? Berger was so, so important to me, partly because, I mean, I became interested in photography after leaving university, and I hadn't read Berger at university. And that was the that was the time when I was also becoming interested in the, the whole realm of sort of theory bollocks. You know, I was really starting to become uh, uh, fluent in discourse speak. And Berger was so interesting because, of course, he was a, a deep thinker. And uh, but also, I mean, and, and I like, you know, I really love I mean, my love for Roland Barthes is undiminished. But, you know, he was pioneering that that sort of way of writing, which then became default, that whole sort of thing of you know, discourse speak, as I call it. But Berger was always very different because there was always this thing where he was engaged in looking so closely at the picture, whether it was a painting or a photograph, and that clarity of thought and expression and the intensity of his gaze was important, very important. But more than that, he was always able to draw the kind of story out of a picture that what first fascinated me. And as the years have gone by and I've become ever more uh, sort of resistant to any kind of uh, anything that has any whiff of the research paper. The ubiquity of, of cameras nowadays almost makes you feel as though you're constantly, potentially the subject of a photograph. And, you know, I wonder if the power of, of certainly these older images is the fact that, you know, the camera was such a novelty and, and whether that gives the photos more power, the fact that the people don't know that they're being photographed and don't even know, have even no concept of, of being the subject of a photograph. Yeah, uh, again, it's a, a huge question. We go back to that picture of the blind woman by Paul Strand. And, you know, he said he was preoccupied on the one hand by a technical problem of how to take pictures of people while they were unaware, which was difficult to do with his bulky camera. On the other hand, he was wondering if there was something sort of revealed about people when they were caught uh, unawares. And then uh, Walker Evans did the same thing, you know, wondering if there was some special quality of being that could be captured when people were photographed without uh, knowing he was doing it on, on the subway. So, yeah, there's a, there's a long tra tradition of that. But then I always go back to that observation of, of Benjamin's again. When he talks about the early days of portrait photography, when he says it was such a production, you know, uh, getting that done and the long exposure times uh, and having to have, have your head in a kind of clamp so that you didn't move. All of that, he said, obliged people to sort of concentrate their whole life, their whole being into that, uh, into that extended uh, period of the exposure time. Both of these things are, are, are present and not exactly competing with each other, but working with each other, I think. Great. And, and the last thing I wanted to ask you is that, you know, obviously you've been living in Los Angeles for some years now and, you know, you often write about Californian photographers or at least photographers who took a lot of photos, especially in L.A. Is it true that the light is different there? <laughs> different to where? To England? Yeah, <laughs> yeah wow, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's certainly, it's certain. I mean, the light is, is, is amazing. It's a, it's a constant source of astonishment. But the other thing about the light in LA, it's not constant. I mean, that the charge that there's no seasons here, it's sort of true, but the light does go through these sort of seasonal changes. <laughs> you know, there are, there are some clouds, this kind of thing. But 
it's so interesting because yeah los angeles is very very photogenic and in some ways it sort of lends itself it looks better and it can look better in photographs than it does in in real life when you're so much of it is nothing but yeah so there's amazing rich wonderful tradition of photography in in california uh, sorry in los angeles but then you know i come back as ever to winterground who ended up here uh, in that last phase of his life you know when he's taking all of these pictures and not getting them uh, printed or, or 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 even developed and for somebody who had become such an adept photographer on the bustling crowded streets of new york I mean, it was a real problem in LA that, you know, so he ends up spending a lot of his time trying to work out how to photograph of a city of predominantly sprawling, sprawling emptiness. So it becomes a problem too. And we also remember that for a street photographer like Cartier-Bresson, you know, he famously preferred overcast skies because then it gave him a kind of 360 degree approach. He could sneak up on people from any direction, not having to worry about shadows and uh, you know getting people silhouetted, that kind of thing. So as ever, it's working in, in, in multiple ways. Thank you to Jeff Dyer for joining me on the Monocle Weekly. His new book, Seesaw, is out now. This program was edited by Louis Allen and Alfie Butler. I'm Alexis Self. Thanks for listening.